from the moment Jesus stepped into Jerusalem to his arduous journey to be crucified and into his glorious resurrection. Come and listen in as Dr. Andy Brown shares the truly awesome significance of the holiest of weeks. This is Hearing is Believing. This is the dark Sabbath. This is the, um, the holy Saturday, the time where we remember that our King was in the tomb. And I invite you, if you have your Bibles, would you join me in Matthew chapter 27? We're breaking away again from Mark tonight. The reason being is because there's only one record of what went on during Saturday of Holy Week. And to find what happened, we go to Matthew chapter 27. And if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to read a poem for you to begin before we get to our text tonight. But I want us to recall what happened in chapter 27 and verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. He is dead, this man from Nazareth the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the world. With his dying breaths, he spoke words of forgiveness, finality, and faith. But now the breathing has ceased, and the lungs that exhaled forgiveness are deflated. My Jesus, dead. The eyes that looked at the crowd with compassion are closed. My Jesus, dead. The arms that reach out to the unworthy are lifeless. My Jesus, dead. The hands that touch the leper are driven through with spikes. My Jesus, dead. The ears that heard the cries of blind men are deaf. My Jesus, dead. The voice that calmed the seas are silent. My Jesus, dead. The feet that walked on water are stopped. My Jesus, dead. The heart that bled for sinful humanity no longer beats. My Jesus, dead. The bread from heaven broken on earth. The light of the world in the shadow of death. The vine that bears fruit withered and fallen. The gateway to God, now sealed in a tomb. The shepherd of souls, struck down by the sheep. The resurrection and the life, a crucified corpse. My Jesus, dead. He loved me and gave himself for me. 
The author of that poem is the editor of the Sunday School material that we use at Oxford Baptist Church, Trevin Wax, the assistant editor of the Gospel Project. The reason why this is such a holy day and a somber day is because we remember that on this day was the longest night before the most glorious morning, a night when the whole world had been rocked and shaken, a night that the sky had been darkened and turned to night, a night that just before there was an earthquake that came and dead men were raised back to life and then all of a sudden there's this silent hush as the king of the world exhales his last breath on the cross and says, it is finished. And the gospels are almost silent on this night except in one place. Only Matthew gives us the events of what happened on this day. So I invite you to join with me in Matthew 27 and look at verse 57. The Bible says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb the next day that is after the day of preparation the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said sir we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days I will rise Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. In the longest night of this dark Sabbath, it looked as if all hope had been lost in the world. The anticipation for all that was coming now seems to have been snuffed out and made of nothing. But thanks be to God that we have a message from Him in the text that shows us that though this day was silent, this day was dark, We see anything but inactivity from God. And so tonight from this text, what I want to show you is I want to show you how God was working, providentially working. Jesus is dead, but God is not dead. Jesus is dead, but God is not dead. And so we have this understanding that though the Son of God is slain, God is at work. The first thing that I want you to notice from this text is God here strengthening Joseph of Arimathea. Look at this, the way that it works. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Do you see this? The first thing that I want us to learn from this text is that God strengthens people to perform His will. Look in the Bible. This Strengthening that we see of Joseph of Arimathea, it often comes in the midst of great adversity, great 
adversity. Jesus is dead, but this is not the end. This is the preparation for what is to come. As we read 57 through 66, all through the narrative we see sharp contrast being drawn between the friends of Jesus and the enemies of Jesus. But God is seen constantly throughout this narrative as constantly acting on behalf of His choice servant, Jesus. You see, God will not allow, though from our perspective, if we were there that day looking All we could look to was through the events that were there. No one was looking forward. No one was anticipating what was coming tomorrow. Though Jesus had said it time and time again, no one was anticipating what was coming. And so we see God working on behalf of His Holy One, His anointed. And so we understand from Psalm 16 and verse 10 that God will not allow His Holy One to see corruption. The Bible says in Psalm 16:10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. And God is performing that even here as the body of the Son is laid in a tomb. Even in the death of Jesus, we see God continually acting. He's constantly moving the course of the events to the pleasure of His goodwill, according to His counsel and all that He desires. Even in the death of Jesus, we see this continually as this man named Joseph of Arimathea, we see it in verse 57, he is a rich man, fulfilling prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. The Bible says that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. In his death. So we see God weaving the tapestry of redemption together. We see him orchestrating these events. And even as Jesus is in the tomb, God is still working. And he's working to bring about our salvation for his satisfaction. And so we look and we are introduced to this man who's come out of nowhere, Joseph of Arimathea. All of a sudden, this man comes into the scene. So, what do we know about Joseph? We know from the other gospel account of Luke that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. We know that this Joseph of Arimathea was opposed to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, who were the Sanhedrin? Just to remember, that was the religious law court. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee who was a member of the religious leaders' inner chambers. But he was one who opposed the crucifixion of Jesus. Listen to what Luke chapter 23 says. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. Why? The Bible tells us because he was looking for the kingdom of God. John chapter 19 and 38, it says this of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a fearful follower. Listen to what it says. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, he went to Pilate and he asked that he might take the body away. So we understand that This Joseph of Arimathea was sort of a reluctant disciple of Jesus. He was sort of a disciple that was sort of hiding in the shadows. What was it about this event? What was it about the death of Jesus that made him display at that moment such great devotion? And look at the way the text is written. He displays this great devotion. Every action that Joseph does points to his devotion. He first comes to Pilate. 
This Pilate, remember who this is. This is the man who could be swayed by the opinions of others. This man who Pilate's wife came to him and said, don't crucify this man. But Pilate didn't listen to his own wife. Instead, he listened to the pressure of the crowds, the pressure of Rome at that time. And he looked at Jesus and he said, you do with him as you wish, knowing that he was handing an innocent man over to be crucified. He just simply takes his hands and washes his hands clean. Joseph takes quite a leap, identifying himself with this one who had just been crucified as a criminal. He identifies himself with Jesus, and he goes to Pilate. The fact that he's even able to have, he skips all the other channels, and he goes straight to Pilate, shows you that Joseph was an important man in the city. And he goes to Pilate, and he asks for the body. And then he would say, we have another clue here about his great devotion to Jesus. He asked for the body and it was given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. The idea of this is this is the best that Joseph of Arimathea had. It was probably a shroud that had never been used before, brand new right off the loom. And another gospel account says that as they there were two men that were primarily involved in taking Jesus off the cross. And it's so interesting, the starch irony that's drawn in the Bible. The two men who take Jesus off the cross are Joseph of Arimathea, a Sanhedrin member of the council, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee. So they take him down off of the cross, and then what does it say next? They laid his body, they laid it, what's the it? The it is the body in his own new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. What does this tell us? This tells us that this tomb was an expensive tomb. This place was cut into the rock, which was not customary. It was not something that everyone did. You had to be a wealthy member to have this tomb that was cut out of the rock, almost like a cave, and he had prepared this for his entire family. But now, now what Joseph is saying is he defiles this tomb from ever being used by anyone else because now this tomb is the tomb of a criminal could no longer be used by his family, and he just simply gives it up to Jesus. He gives it up to Jesus in full devotion to him. We have this idea that this, this stone was rolled, and so we have this image of this round stone that was rolled over the tomb, and that's another indicator of his wealth, because normally in those days a rounded stone cost more money than just what was customary, a square stone. And Joseph shows his complete devotion to Jesus by coming to Pilate, by using this specific cloth, by giving up his own tomb that he spent his money on. But why? Why did he do all this? Why? What was his motivation? Well, Luke tells us. Luke tells us that he was seeking the kingdom of God. Now, 
let's just say this and let's put all the cards on the table as we would like to super spiritualize this text. We just simply, we can't say definitively whether or not Joseph had any idea of the resurrection. And the reason that I say we can't have any idea of that is because the women who were with him as they see the, the body laid in the tomb on the next morning when they come to the tomb, they don't know what's going on. It totally takes everyone by surprise. And so we shouldn't think that Joseph knew that the resurrection was coming. There's no indicator in the text. But his actions show that he understood Jesus to be a man sent from God. And as much as he knew how, his intentions were to honor him as best he knew how. Like the woman who anointed Jesus for burial with that alabaster flask, this is another picture, another image of devotion to Jesus in pure and courageous form. The Lord always responds to those who have a wholehearted devotion to Him. He's going based upon all that He knows, all that has been revealed, and that's enough for Him. He's going based upon all that God has revealed at this time. And God always responds to your devotion, your wholehearted devotion for what you know. And we're accountable, dear beloved, for what we know. Once we hear the truth, we are accountable for the truth that we hear. When I gave my life to Jesus, I was a young boy, six years old. I didn't understand much except that Jesus died for my sins. And I remember as a boy the first time when Miss Karen, my kindergarten teacher at Mills Chapel Baptist Church, we went through the story, and I remember her holding up a picture of this man on a cross, and I remember this overwhelming sense of why would this man die for me? Why would that man give his life for me? I couldn't get over the fact that he died for me because he loved me. And some of you here tonight are the same. And oftentimes we do the same. Our love for Jesus means that we don't have all the answers. We don't know all that there is, but our testimony is the same testimony of the blind man. I don't know about all these things, but this is what I do know. I was once blind, and now I see. Our love for Jesus doesn't mean that we have all the answers. It means that we simply trust Him and we obey Him. Because we love Him. Could you just imagine after Resurrection Sunday, after tomorrow, on that morning, could you just imagine how God radically used this act in Joseph's life? We don't know much about Joseph anymore. I'm sure we could look in church history and find a legend, find something about Joseph that was passed down, some historical record. But as far as a scripture reference, we don't know much about Joseph of Arimathea anymore. But I guarantee you, he was there. 
I guarantee you that he was there the day. If this man's willing and bold enough to go stand before Pilate, the man that just sentenced his Lord to death and executed him, don't you know that he was there? Maybe he was one of those 120 that was gathered in the upper room praying as the Holy Spirit came down with cloven tongues of fire. Maybe he was there. We don't know. But can't you just imagine how God used this one simple act of devotion in the life of Joseph? He showed devotion to God without fully knowing what he was doing. How much more devotion do you think that he did now that he knows? Oh, beloved, this is the reason why we preach every week and we invite you to come to Bible study every week because we want you to grow. We want you to know. We want you to take the truth of God and apply it to your life because it is so rich, so magnificent I have been enamored by God this week as this week I've done something that I have never done I have preached Sunday Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday and I will preach Sunday again and all of these messages that you've been hearing has been God working on my heart as I've been pouring over the text nothing that you've heard has been something that I've ever preached before and I have found the Word of God To be a well that never runs dry. How much more devotion do you think that you and I would have if we just simply applied ourselves to know the Word of God? Now that's what we see here, Joseph. But think about what we don't see. Usually the body of a loved one who had died was taken care of by a family or by close followers? Where are the disciples? Where is Mary, the mother of Jesus? Where are they? The only other character that we see are Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who are there sitting opposite the tomb. And the reason that they're just simply there sitting is because Roman law would not even allow for them to mourn the death of Jesus because he was a man who was put to death by the state, put to death by the government. He was a man who had undergone capital punishment and they were not allowed to mourn because of his sentence. So even the women, Mary and the other Mary, they simply have to mourn at a silence distance. You know, God raises, think about this, our God who reigns, our God who rules, our God when it looked like that he was dealt a death blow, instead he had himself dealt a death blow once and for all on the cross to sin. The next day he will deal a death blow once and for all to death and he will end the sting of death forever. At what would seem to be his most weak moment, his most vulnerable moment. He's not vulnerable at all. He's reigning and he's ruling. And God, doing what he does, true to who he is, he raises strength in the most unlikely places to ensure that his will will be carried out. 
His will is setting these events up for the resurrection. That's what he's doing. He is orchestrating this tapestry, weaving it in. The last details, he's moving in place. He is setting these events for the resurrection, and he will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Because otherwise, he would not be who he said that he was. And Jesus would have not been who he said that he was. And so God is constantly moving. We see Him moving in the life of the friends of Jesus. But notice the next section here as we look in verses 63 through 66. We see Him working in even those who despise the cross. We see Him working even with the enemies of the cross to bring about His intentions. And what are His intentions? His intentions are for Jesus to be resurrected with convincible proofs. So what does God do here? God removes any possibility for fraud in this text. Look, let me show you. The fear of the religious leaders, it wasn't crushed by the death of Jesus. Isn't this interesting? Jesus is dead. What are they worried about? Thought that they had dealt with him. Now we see their fear just continually growing. Reaching a climax, even though Jesus is now dead, they are still fearful. But even in their fear, what are they afraid of? They're afraid of fraud. That's what they're afraid of. Because they said that if he's raised, the disciples come and steal the body, and they start touting that this one is raised, the last fraud will be worse than the first. They weren't expecting a resurrection. The suffering and rising of a Messiah, it didn't fit with any of the expectations that they had. But look at this. It says in verse 63, we remember how that imposter said, what a strike of irony. Who's the imposter here? We remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. How did they know this? Look at the contrast that's being drawn The women didn't get it, the disciples didn't get it, but these religious leaders, they remembered what Jesus had said. They remembered that there was this idea circulating that Jesus in three days was going to rise. How did they know this? I think that the reference to three days tells us how they knew this. In Matthew chapter 12, as the scribes and Pharisees were seeking a sign, they came to Jesus and they said, give us a sign, give us some kind of proof to know that you're the Christ. And Jesus looked at them and he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he goes on and he uses this phrase, three days, listen for him. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And it's important for us to go on this day in our minds filled full of faith. It's important for us to not neglect this day. Though this is the dark Sabbath we still refer to this as Holy Saturday because it is entirely important for our salvation that the king be in a tomb dead. Because what that means is that he had to undergo the penalty of sin 
so that he could remove it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that he became sin for us. Took the total payment, the total penalty for sin, and allowed his body to die. And lifeless. He's carried, wrapped in a shroud, and laid into a tomb. Jesus was dead. That's an important part of our confession as Christians. That Jesus died. Some would say, well, that's not truly important. Yes, it is. It's entirely important. Because he had to undergo death so that he could then offer us life through death. What did he say to uh, Martha, if you remember? As Lazarus was in the tomb, he said, He who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus underwent the penalty. Jesus went through death. It's appointed for a man once to die. And after this comes the judgment. And this is the sweet expectation that you and I have if the Lord tarries. If He does not come back tonight and we die. We close our eyes in death realizing that we are partaking in the same events that our God and Savior went through as He closed His eyes and breathed His last. But just as death was not the end for him, so it will not be the end for us who hope and believe in him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and I love the way Corinthians is. He goes, first 14 really chapters of talking about ethical issues and all these things, and it's not until chapter 15 that he homes in on doctrine. And in chapter 15, he deals with a resurrection, which is the centerpiece of Christianity. Without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. And this is what he says. Listen to what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Did you hear that? First importance. What happened? He died. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. You have to have it all in order to have the gospel. An incarnate spotless Son of God undergoing death, a genuine death for me, for you, for us, laying Him in a tomb. You and I, at this point, it's important for us to remember a clear message that the Bible preaches as we see these Pharisees and chief priests and going together to Pilate. We see these enemies of the cross Getting their plan together. They're scheming as they've been doing all throughout. And hope that you've seen by now that the plan and purpose of God cannot be stopped no matter what the scheme of man may say. And so here we have them that they're going and scheming. And in this we remember that a clear message of the Bible is God's sovereign control over all events. Every event in your life. And oftentimes, oftentimes, God uses the wicked intentions of others to bring about His will. And this is the way that God has been acting from the very beginning. Do you remember with Joseph and his coat of many colors? 
as he was sold, thrown into a well, left for dead, raised up, sold to a bunch of slave traders, taken off to Egypt. And then his brothers come kneel down before him and he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Oh, there's so much mystery there and I don't understand it and I don't have to understand it. I know that this is the way that God works. This is the way, this is how sovereign and in control he is. That he can even use the wicked schemes of others as part of his tapestry, as part of his design to bring about the good, to bring about his will His intention. You see, the enemies of Jesus, they make it clear as we go back to the text that they expect Jesus' body to stay in the tomb. They expect and they intend to keep the body sealed forever. What do they do here? Look at the Bible. They go to Pilate. They place a guard and they place a seal. This seal on the tomb, right at the entrance of the tomb, this seal represents the highest power in the land. But on the dawn of the next morning, a greater power will come and break the seal. Someone moved the stone to reveal, not to let Jesus out, but to reveal that He is risen. All of these efforts as we see them scheming and it's almost as if God is up in heaven just laughing as He sees these little ones going and performing His will entirely. All of their efforts to ensure that the body was not moved made it clear that the only way for the body to be moved was if God moved it Himself. As D.A. Carson says, with the dawn... All the efforts to eliminate Jesus, Messiah, from the stage of redemption history are held up for heavenly derision in the irresistible triumph of the resurrection. God, who is wisest of all, laughs in heaven at the plans of the wicked. These wicked ones are playing right into God's hands. Right into His plan to save the world. Listen listen to what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 2. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. It's almost as if this psalm is being fulfilled as we see the scheme of man and all that they've been doing, trying to stop the plan, the purpose of God to come through. Psalm chapter 2 rings loud and clear. Psalm chapter 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against His Christ, His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Listen to verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, 
my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all of those who take refuge in Him. And yes, beloved, even though our King was in a tomb on Saturday night, we still are commanded to take our refuge in Him. Nothing changed. The death of the Son was the promised purpose and the plan of God. So, Saturday is the longest and darkest night. The disciples are hiding in fear. Jesus is dead. But God is at work. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are so grateful that on Saturday night it was realized that our king took our sin took our sorrows made them his very own he took the burden away to calvary and he suffered and died alone god we're thankful for saturday not Saturday in and of itself, but just because Saturday we know Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.